We are now ready to get into uh, the scriptures. So if you need a Bible, please raise your hand. Uh, we will get one to you. I always want you to be keeping me honest. Um, the moment I go off script and I start getting unmoored from the scriptures is the moment you ought to call me out. Um, so I want you to have a Bible in front of you, seeing what I see, seeking God um, in his word with me. We are in Luke 19 this morning. So in, in the New Testament, the second part of the, the Bible there, you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke's gospel. And uh, believe it or not, I mean, we're, we're pretty deep into this now. Luke 19, um, verses 11 through 27, what we're going to be reading. All right, let me read it. We'll pray and then dive in. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him. And sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Nothing like a a nice little note to end on there. (laughs) All right, let's pray. God, bottom line, you are holy. You are holy and we are not. You are set apart, perfect in all that you do, righteous in every action. God, and we are shot through with sin. We don't belong in this place. Well, I should say in one sense we do because we were created for you. And in another sense, we don't because we've rebelled against you. And yet, in view of your mercy, because of the cross, Jesus' death, his resurrection, 
perfect righteousness imputed to us. Here we are. Approaching a holy God. Confident that we'll be accepted. Confident that our prayers will be heard. Confident that you are now to us a father leaning in to speak as if to your kids. In love. And God, we need to hear your voice this morning. We need you to encourage. We need you to convict. We need you to, to, to show us more of your heart, more of your love. We need you to keep us on, on the narrow path and to keep us, as our text would say, engaging in business, stewarding all that you've given us for the sake of your kingdom with a view to your return. There are so many forces in the culture, in the spiritual dimension, and in our own hearts and flesh that would push against that sort of thing. And we're asking right now that you would come and show yourself stronger still. I use my words, God, let me speak only those things which you would have spoken to your people. Meet with us here this morning, we pray. Amen. Um, okay, so with Jesus's parables, we're, we're, we're going to deal this morning with another parable, um, uh, of Christ and, um, with a lot of Jesus's parables, what you'll notice, and you'll probably even do this, uh, somewhat intuitively is that we're kind of invited to, to see ourselves, to try to identify ourselves in the parable. So if you think back with me to some of the parables we've seen, uh, we've looked at like the prodigal son, right? The parable of what I call really the two sons. And there in Luke 15, we're, we're invited there to kind of go, wait, which son am I? <laughs> Who am I? Am I kind of like the prodigal who's kind of run off from God and I'm thinking I'm going to find my satisfaction somewhere else out here in a distant country? Or am I perhaps more like that older brother who's right at home doing all the work, but for all the wrong reasons? Maybe I'm a crazy mixture of both. And then we've come to other parables like in Luke 18, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Maybe you remember that one where, you know, we're again invited to go, who am I here? Am I kind of like that Pharisee who's up in the front, you know, uh, just parading his own righteousness and and, and wanting, making making sure everybody sees him in all of his glory and hears as he prays about all of his good deeds. Are we kind of like that? Or we like that tax collector who Jesus says is in the back with his face to the ground, pounding on his chest saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Who, who, who are we? Where are we? How did the details of the parable kind of merge with my life? We're always invited to do that when we come to parables like these. And, and this morning we come to another one. Where the burning question really is going to be, gosh, where do I fit? Where am I in the middle of this? What should I make of these things? Where do I stand in in relation to the matter put forth in these verses? So the way I'm going to come at this text this morning is actually to really just ask five questions of it. And I'm going to try to 
spin those questions in, in more of a personal way. Um, so that we can kind of, we're already kind of moving towards where am I here? And I want to get us thinking about that. So here are the questions for you. Uh, you'll see them on your handout as well. First, have I been given a mina? Okay, I don't, does this even relate to me? What, what is this all about? Have I been given a mina? Second, if so, what is it? Third, how do I turn it for gain like you see these servants doing? Fourth, what motivates me in this work? And fifth, what is coming for me at his return? Now, obviously, if you know me, that's an awful lot. We'll see how far I can get with it. Uh, and I may have to just kind of edit on the fly and, 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 and hit the eject button. But we'll, we'll do our best. Before I uh, jump into those questions, um, I actually feel like there's a little bit of work I need to do up front to set the stage so we kind of catch what's happening in this parable. Um, a few little notes, a couple observations I want to make. Uh, the first has to do with the context. So... Look at how in verse 11, this parable or really this whole kind of scene begins before Jesus even shares the parable. We're given uh, uh, some contextual clues that will help us in our interpretation. Verse 11 opens like this. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. So you just stop right there with me and you go wait. as they heard these things. First of all, what things? OK, well. Go back a little bit with me. And what did we just come off the heels of? But the story of Zacchaeus, right? And so Jesus had just been saying, man, salvation has come to this house. And, and the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And, and there's, there's, there's this mixed group of company all around. And Jesus is talking about it. So as they heard these things, those things about Zacchaeus and the Son of Man, he proceeds to tell a parable. But then we have to ask the question, who's the they, Right? Who's the they? We want to fill it out a little bit more. Who's the audience that he's speaking this parable to? And um, so it would be, again, those people there in the story of Zacchaeus, which means you have these 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 disciples, these crowds are following Jesus. Sure. And Zacchaeus, even in the mix. Sure. But then you also have those guys who've been grumbling. Those, those guys were upset that Jesus would be in the house of a man like Zacchaeus the, that we saw back up in verse seven. So you've got sort of mixed company, and that's going to come into play as he shares this parable. We need to keep that in mind. That's the context. Observation number two, we come to uh, this idea of the, the reason that the parable's given. And I want you to see this because Luke now, a number of times, has kind of handed us the interpretive key to the parable he's about to record up front. I don't know if you remember this, but we we saw that sort of thing um, back in, I think it was Luke 18, with the parable of the, the, the per- persistent widow was one of them. It says, now Jesus told this parable so that they would not lose heart and keep praying. So already we're told, here's why he told the parable. So it makes my job as an expositor easy. All right, I know the main point already. Uh, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee that I referenced in the beginning there. He tells us, Luke tells us why Jesus shared that parable. He told this parable so that, uh, because there were people who were trusting in themselves that they were righteous. So he, he blasts that Pharisee up in the front, trusting in himself that he's righteous and lifts up the guy in the back who's gone, I, I shouldn't be here, but goes home counted righteous, justified. Again, interpretive key. But here, actually, we're given the interpretive key to this parable. Again, keep reading in uh, 
Verse 11, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Why? Because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Luke handed us an awful lot. That is very significant. What we learn here, then, is that Jesus tells this parable precisely because he's getting close to Jerusalem. Those of you guys who know kind of Holy Week and the way that, you know, Easter and stuff plays out, we're about to move towards the triumphal entry. We're about to move towards Palm Sunday, right? So he's, he is encroaching upon Jerusalem just a few miles away. He knows, okay, we're, go, we're getting close. And he also knows that what's going to go down there in Jerusalem with him on the cross is going to fly in the face of Jewish messianic expectation. So he tells this parable to clarify. That's what Luke is saying Let me give you a quick background, though, on this. And I I, got to go fast on this, but I I want you to know it. Some of you may be familiar. Some of you may not. Uh, Either way, it's in play as we come to try to interpret this parable. Jerusalem was um, and still is, obviously, a very important city to the Jewish people. Uh, Back in the Old Testament, King David, remember, he kind of He kind of conquers the guys who were there and actually sets Jerusalem up as kind of the capital city there in Judah. And they're going to build the temple there, right? They're going to build the king's palace there, right? And then um, we remember, perhaps, that in 2nd, what is it, Uh, 2nd Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13, God shows up to David and makes this covenant with him about the king and the, the, the kingdom. Important stuff that, that's going to come into play in our parable. And God says this, when your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish, here it is, the throne of his kingdom forever. They go, wow, that's, that's some heavy stuff. That's an amazing word. David just goes... I'm not worthy of this. Then Solomon's born and everyone goes, okay, the kingdom's taken off. Here we go. We're about to see this happen. Man, someone on the throne forever. Kingdom established from this point forward. And then what happens? Solomon's idolatry leads the nation to kind of divide and split. And then it spirals down until Nebuchadnezzar walks off with Israel in chains. And the temple and all that in ruins. And we know from our scriptures, perhaps from the Old Testament story, perhaps that Israel, yeah, they come back, they rebuild the temple, they regain some sense of national identity and pride a little bit, but they from that point forward will always remain under the thumb of Gentile nation. If it wasn't Babylon, it was going to be Persia. If it's not Persia, it's Greece. If it's not Greece, it's now in Jesus' day, Rome. You didn't come here for a seminary class, but there you go. So for the Jewish people, this is one of the greatest historical perplexities. Okay, they look at this. They they look at how this unfolded. They look at what God said to David, this covenant that he made. 
about someone, an offspring of him, sitting on the throne forever. And then they look how it played out in history and they just scratch their head going, we don't get it. There's bafflement here. They're, they're, they're troubled by it. And they're even getting angsty and angry and frustrated, right? Look, what's the deal? Where's the king? <laughs> and then along comes Jesus of Nazareth. And there's, as his ministry's going, there's this sort of um, messianic energy starts to rise. People start to, to, to murmur and talk and they're starting to ask them, is he the one? Could he be the guy? Is this what we've been waiting for, right? And of course, we know he is the one, right? He is the Messiah. He is the offspring of David. He is the king of Israel. In fact, if you know uh, your, your Christmas stories, you remember Gabriel comes to Mary and, and basically talking about Jesus references the text I just read uh, with the covenant made with David. He says this, he will be great. Jesus will and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. You say, yes, Israel, he is the one. He is the king. He's going to sit on the throne. That throne is there in Jerusalem. And he's on his way in our text. to He's rounding the corner to home. And all of a sudden, the messianic, the energy is building, right? He's going to take what's rightfully his. Ours. God's going to make good on, on what we have been waiting for for so long, right? Yes. And no. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. But it wasn't. At least not in the way that they expected it to appear in full glory with the Son of God just reflexing his muscles and the Romans and everybody just running. Sitting down on a throne and them ruling beside him, whatever it was they expected. Jesus is going to have to tell this parable to push back on that. Because, man, they have no category. They, they have no conception of a, a dead Messiah. A crucified king. We get it now on the other side. They had no clue. That was what was going to go down. They, they couldn't even conceive of it. That's why when Jesus, he tells them time and time again, listen guys, gather around. Let me tell you, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise. I'm going to go. I'll come back. It's going to be okay. Now just go suffer, die. We don't get that part, but we like the rise, but we like the kingdom part. Yes. They, 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 they don't get it. And so he tells this parable to, again, push back on some of these expectations and show them. Here's what's going to have to happen because I'm going to die. I'm going to rise. I'm going to go. I'll return. I need you to know how you ought to live in the space between my, my two comings, in the space between phase one of the kingdom and phase two, where we bring it in in full. 
That's what we are about to uh, engage together. And with that, we're ready to approach these five questions that I have for us. Um, so the first question, have I been given a minor? Okay, again, I'm just going to spin this personally and I'll deal with the details of the text, but I, I want us to always be seeing ourselves in it. Not because it's, I want it to be, you know, me centered, but because I think that's what God wants us to do here. So have I been given a minor? Uh, look at verses 12 through 14 as I try to make my way towards an answer. Um, I know some of you are like, I don't even know what a mina is. I don't even know if I want one. Uh, we'll get there. Uh, verses 12 through 14. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Now, you'll note right away there are three different kind of players in this parable. Um, you've got first this nobleman who I think we'd all agree uh, is referring to Jesus. Um, and he talks about this nobleman going off to a far country and to receive his kingdom. And I love that because we get what the meaning is there. The idea is, okay, he's going, it's far away. He absolutely, in his death and resurrection and his ascension, we're told he sits down at the right hand of the Father on the throne. He's got the kingdom, right? But it's going to take a while for us to really see the full manifestation of it. He's going to receive it in a far country. And he's going to return and come back. So you've got this noble man in the parable and then in the second place drop down to verse 14 and we meet a, a second group of people who'd uh who jesus refers to as his citizens his citizens now sadly the notes about them are no good um they were told hate him they are filled with spite when it comes to him they uh, send delegations to wherever he's going to receive this kingdom. They say, we don't want him to reign over us. It's an interesting historical analogy that would be in the mind of the Jews here, where um, actually, I think it was one of Herod's sons who was, this is how it would work. Uh, he, he had to go, he was reigning there, I think, in, in Judea, and he had to go to Rome to receive this kingdom. And the people of Israel were upset about him and sent delegations to say, we don't want him, he's a jerk. He's killed 3,000 of our people on the Passover or whatever it was. And so that would probably be in the mind here. This actually is kind of how things would work. You'd go to Rome, you'd receive your kingdom, you'd come back. And Jesus is using that analogy. And here again, we see these citizens who are saying, we don't want him. We don't like Jesus. We don't like this guy. We don't want him to be our king. Now, who is that in the crowd around? But probably those Jews who were grumbling. Probably a lot of those religious leaders and others who, when they saw him going into the room with Zacchaeus, said, yuck. We knew he was a sinner. We knew he was nasty. We don't want this. If that's the king, get him out of here. We want a king that ruled, you know, rules in the way that we want. Runs things the way we think they should be run. His citizens. Certainly in this we're meant, I think, also to draw lines towards the present day as well, where there are people all around the world 
and many, many in this city who want nothing to do with Christ, who hate him, who don't want him to reign over them, don't want his words, his rule, his, his, his laws. No, thank you. But then third, we find this other group here whom Jesus refers to as his servants there in verse 13. Now, this clearly alludes to those who have an interest in Jesus, who are attempting to follow along with him. It's a reference to his disciples. It's a a reference, I hope, to people like you and me. Uh, People who have an interest in Jesus, people who are following behind him, people who uh, I think we all, we want to grow in his likeness. We want to learn from him. We want to be uh, his disciples, yes, and even his servants. And if that is the case for you and I, then I would say the answer to my first question is yes. You and I have a mina, you could say. God has given to us some resource that we are called to steward for his sake. Because if you look at the parable, it is the servants and the servants alone whom the king entrusts with such a thing. So. Then we move to the second question, then, and we'll just kind of keep digging in a little deeper. If yes, if it's true that I'm a part of this parable as one of his disciples, there's certain things that have been entrusted to me in the parable itself that it's called a mina. Uh, I want to know if it's true, what in the world is a mina? Uh, because it seems to me that stewarding that is quite important in this space between phase one and phase two of the kingdom. His death and resurrection and his return. So let me try to come at an answer to that question. Um, Amina at the time, if we're just kind of dealing with it first, literally, historically, was, um, that's right, that's right, was money. Okay, it was a Greek coin uh, that I think was worth about 100 days wages. So actually not all that much, um, but a decent amount. Uh, it was money, okay? Uh, now, we know Jesus is not talking about, hey, uh, Christians, hey, disciples, I'm going to give you an allowance. You know, I want you to, we're not, he's not talking about literal money here. And us kind of going, doing investments, whether it's with Dave Ramsey or Vanguard or what, you know. No, he's not talking about literal money. He's using money to get at spiritual reality, to get at something Else, It's an illustration, an analogy to talk about this idea of stewarding what the king has given to us. So then what is this mina that we're called the steward that we've been given by him? What would it consist of? Because I recognize it's I'm still vague on it. And now I want to give you three things. Uh, now, these are just the three things that kind of came to my mind as I thought about it. I am sure there's more and we could continue to build it out. But this is enough, I think, to kind of capture um, what I would imagine um, this mina entails. I would say it at least includes three things. First, goods, gifts, and gospel. Uh, gifts or goods, gifts, and gospel. Let me kind of take you through those one at a time. Uh, with goods, uh, I'm thinking especially of material goods. I'm thinking of the reality that all that we have um, is a gift to us from God. It's been given to us from God. Uh, I get that that's going to grate against American individualistic sensibilities. It says, no, no, no. My own blood, sweat, and tears got me this 
fill in the blank, car, house, you know, whatever. These, you know, $300 shoes, whatever. I, I earned that. Well, I get it in one sense with our own energy and, and time and work. We hopefully are, you know, making an honest living. But even behind, underneath, more fundamental, we see in the scriptures that, listen, God has given that to you. Where'd you get the breath that gave you, you know, the, the life to go and do that? Where'd you get the, the energy? Who's upholding every cell molecule? What? It's him. We, we don't understand the amount of dependence we actually have on God as our creator and sustainer. And so we come to certain texts in scripture that say things like this. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast if, as if you did not receive it? <laughs> it is a, just put it all you know, out in the middle of the room. And let me just say, listen, all of that you received. What do you have that you did not receive? Answer, nothing. John the Baptist fills that out even further for us in John 3.27 when he says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Like it, it comes to you from God. That's where it comes from. Perhaps you've had those times where you're trying with all your might and you can't make it happen. You, you come to realize, man, if God doesn't bless this, I can't, I can't go anywhere with it. Sometimes he lets us kind of sit in our mistaken notion that we're, you know, able and we're, we're self-accomplished and all this and I can pull myself up. And there are times where he just touches that hip, throws it out of sock and you go, my goodness, I can't get, there's no way I can, I can make anything happen unless you come and you help and you do it. Um, first Chronicles 29, 14, David is, is, is praying to God after he just took up an offering for, uh, kind of the building of the temple and palace and things there. And he says this, who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly for all things come from you and of your own have we given you. <laughs> whatever we give to you in this offering, whatever we do, listen, it's all just yours in the first place. That's what I mean by we've been given goods. Second, Gifts. What I mean here, I'm, I'm thinking especially of what we might call, and maybe you've heard referred to as spiritual gifts. Um, these are those special endowments of Christ's personality and power given to us through his spirit that, again, it would seem we are called to steward in some way. We've been gifted with these things and when we're called to steward, this is what Paul refers to in Romans 12, 6, when he says that we all have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. You're a Christian. You have the spirit of God. You have gifts given to you by the spirit. Grace. First Corinthians 12, 7, he goes on to say this to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. So, what is this minor? First, material goods in some way, spiritual gifts. Let me just, on that spiritual gift piece, just say this. If, if you feel, some of us probably feel this. If you just feel like, man, I, I, I'm, I'm too stupid. I'm, I'm, I'm too worthless. I'm too insignificant 
to be of any use to the king or his kingdom, the church, the advance of the gospel, those sorts of things. Listen to me. This text is saying, no way. You have Christ in you. I know you may feel dumb. I know you may feel like I'm just destined to be that, that bench warmer. Listen, there are no bench warmers in the kingdom of God. There are none. None in the church. They're all called off and into the game. They're all given aspects of his, of his spirit and, and, and ministry that he wants to be displayed. And really, it, it can only be displayed in this, in this body through you. So I just would encourage you with that. Third, what does this idea of a mina entail? Um, I think, uh, finally, it entails this idea of we've been entrusted with the gospel itself, um, with the gospel message. Uh, so with this, I'm thinking of texts like First uh, Corinthians 4.1, where Paul says this. He says, we are servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, by mysteries here, um, he certainly has uppermost in his mind the, 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 the doctrine, the idea, the, the, the message of the gospel. And he says, I am a steward of that message. I know the Jewish, to the Jewish people, it is a mystery. The cross is a stumbling block. It seems foolish. It seems weak. But we know that there at the cross, the death and resurrection of Jesus has made a way for us to be reconciled to a holy God. And I am now, Paul is saying, a steward of that message. And so are you and I. We've been entrusted with it. In another place, he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Second Corinthians 4, 7. Now, I love that text. Because guess what? You and I are the jars of clay. The gospel, clearly in the context, is the treasure. And Paul is saying, listen, your life, the point of your life is to pour that treasure out. In such a way that others come to see the value, the worth, the, the, the satisfaction that can be found in Christ. You pour it out. It's the point of my life as his servant. Um, fill this third piece out a little bit more for you. This idea that the gospel is what we've been entrusted with too and is perhaps part of this idea of a, a mina. Um, later, uh, I love this, after Jesus has died and risen and he, he, he shows up again to his disciples, he's about to ascend and he kind of gives them their marching orders um, uh, before he goes. Uh, it, it's interesting the overlap between uh, the parable and the stuff we're dealing with here and this last conversation he has with his boys. Because they are still... Even now, after the cross and resurrection, uh, thinking, okay, now it's time for the kingdom, right? Woo! We made it through those hard three days when we thought it was over. But now, you're here, and, and the kingdom is coming. Now, right? Hold on. No. We're going to talk about what you need to do in between this first coming and when I come again. And it all has to do with stewarding the gospel. Let me read this to you. Acts 1, 6 through 8. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Oh, yes. Now, 
He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father is fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So they ask him, is the kingdom coming in full right away? He says, no, but the spirit is coming right away. And that spirit will empower you to do what you ought to do in this space between, namely, be my witnesses. Witnesses, they say. Witnesses to what? The gospel. The point of the space between is to, to, to give testimony to the death and resurrection of Jesus, the gospel by which men can be saved and reconciled to all of God before the end comes. And it is too late. That's the point. Take that to the ends of the earth, servants, disciples, Beloved friends, okay, see, okay, I I think we have a minor, hopefully I filled it out a little bit more for you, what that minor might entail that we've been entrusted with, now we come to question number three, how do I turn it for gain? How do I turn this minor that I've been given and use it and invest it and do business or whatever? And like he says, in such a way that I bring about kingdom gain. I've been kind of nudging us towards the answer to this already, but I'll start to make it plainer here. If Jesus has entrusted me with a minor, if he's given me goods, gifts and the gospel, what does it mean to steward these things in such a way that I bring profit to the kingdom? Profit to the king. Because if you notice, look at verse 15 of our parable. I mean, this is what, when he returns, this is the conversation. I mean, among other things we know from the scriptures, but this is part of it. Look at it. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Now, as we keep going, as I just continue to feel kind of the need to say, listen, this is not about, you know, being like savvy in, in, in your, your business dealings. This is not like Jesus is that kind of guy, like step into my office. And he's like the, that bad boss who only cares about the bottom line. And if you didn't produce, he's going to cut you. That's not what's happening here. He's talking about kingdom economics. He's just using, again, earthly, worldly analogies to help us understand these spiritual things. That we are called to uh, take what God has entrusted to us in Christ and bring about spiritual profit in some way. And it would seem that our destiny, our eternal destiny, kind of hinges on what we do or don't do with this. Right? And so I think we better know what does it mean? What does it look like to turn uh, this mina, our, our, our goods, gifts, the gospel, for spiritual gain and profit? Um, I wanted to, before I unpack this a little further, I just simply wanted to sum up my answer with a single sentence. Um, it's there on your handout because I want you to see it. It's essentially the point of this whole sermon. If we would bring gain for Christ's kingdom with our entrusted goods, gifts, and gospel, then we must release our goods and use our gifts for the sake of the gospel. 
I'm going to just read that one more time. I'm not trying to be haughty. I know, I know I'm quoting myself here, but here it is. If we would bring gain for Christ's kingdom with our entrusted goods, gifts, and gospel, then we must release our goods and use our gifts for the sake of the gospel. That's the point of this sermon, to help you understand that. So what do I mean when I'm saying that? What what? What, what am I getting at with that? I hope you agree with me, but what really does it mean? Let's take a couple things here and unpack it. Releasing our goods for the sake of the gospel. Let me just put an illustration on that for you. It means doing something like what the early church does in the book of Acts. Okay, so... I just referenced the, the, the uh, Acts 1 and how Jesus is giving them their marching orders. And, okay, you know, you need to go and be witnesses. The Spirit's coming. Well, the Spirit falls, Acts 2. Paul, uh, Peter preaches and the people are saved. The gospel's going forward. But there's this interesting little kind of side narrative going on. This little notes on the side that show us something else is happening as well. And we come to realize that as the gospel is advancing, this community is doing something crazy. They're releasing their stuff for the sake of the mission of God. Their their, their hands are loosening on their goods, on their material stuff. They just don't care that much about it because they have a heavenly father who is who's who's all for them is going to take care of them so they can release this stuff for the advance of this mission, the advance of this kingdom. Acts 2, 44, 45, all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, in case you know, you're worried, you can relax. I, I'm, I'm not trying to start some crazy little cult. I've actually heard of churches trying to do this, right? Where, you know, let me see your bank account. Let me you know, come like, like they did before the apostles come and lay all your stuff in front of me and let me uh, distribute it as a, no we're not talking about this was unique when the apostles were there and all this sort of stuff what we are trying to identify here those man releasing your goods for the sake of the gospel looks like that it looks like saying man are there people in need are there people that i, I want to use my stuff in such a way that people can see the the the, the value the worth of Christ, and that the gospel can go forward and reach more. We often treat our stuff like ends in and of themselves. Like we chase it like a carrot at the end of the stick. And when I get it, that's the end. I got the toy. I got the house. I got whatever it is. But now in the gospel, something different, uh, or in the kingdom, something different happens. We actually say, no, no, no. My stuff isn't the end. My stuff is a means to the end of making much of Jesus. And releasing it for him to use as he sees fit. So let me give you a few examples. Just for you to kind of consider. Just silly examples. And I don't mean any offense by this when I call a dog uh, part of your material goods. I know they're part of the family. But, but just think about some of the stuff that you own, so to speak. Okay, Like think of a dog. And, and think of how, yes, they bring you blessing. They bring you happiness. Way more happiness than a cat would, right? <laughs> They're awesome. They want to hang out with you. They want to play. They want to snuggle. It's amazing. 
you kind of get into this idea of using what God has entrusted to you for the sake of the gospel. All of a sudden, yes, your dog is awesome in and of him or herself. You, you love this guy. But you also realize, wow, I mean, there's a whole community that kind of opens up to you now. Because there are dog walkers and they're all out there walking their dogs around the neighborhood. And they want to go together. Or sometimes you hang out. Or they want to stop and pet your dog. I've heard people talk about this and how their dogs actually allow them to have conversation in the neighborhoods. And, and they're just out and about and getting to know people. And I'm just saying, all of a sudden, that fluffy, furry, lovable little creature becomes something more. It, it, it's, it's, we see how it can be stewarded for the gospel, for the sake of the gospel. Same thing with, like, say, take your house, for example, right? Is your house your own personal sanctuary where you can shut out the world? Uh, maybe for a little while on Sabbath, whatever. But no, at the same time, God says, I've entrusted that to you to be used for the sake of the kingdom. So, yes, people come in, they're going to mess up your stuff. Go home group at my house Friday night. I spend probably an hour or two hours afterwards cleaning up after all the kids to come in and then just do this, right? <laughs> I, but it's like, you know what? That, that's the point. The point is to create space where we can share the hospitality of heaven with others, our neighbors, people in the church, people who need a safe spot to come and cry, whatever it is, Right? So you just start seeing your stuff in a different way. You start releasing your goods for the sake of the gospel. I think that's what it means to start turning it for gain in a kingdom spiritual sort of way. What about using our gifts for the sake of the gospel? Uh, I think this one we can intuit it, but you know, a lot of times in our flesh we take uh, perhaps spiritual gifts, perhaps even natural abilities that God has given us. And we try to use it not for the sake of building up, you know, God's kingdom, uh, uh, building up, raising up God's name. But instead, we try to build a name for ourselves, if we're honest. We try to build a kingdom for ourselves, if we're honest. And we get all into that. We use these talents and these gifts and these skills and, and things that he has given us to try to gain a following. Instead of doing what Peter tells us to do in 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11, which I love this text. Listen up, meditate on this later. Peter says this, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Do you hear that? He says, listen, if you're in Christ, if you have the spirit, you have a gift. Steward it well. Don't be using that to build your own platform or get people to notice and praise you. Use it to serve others, Peter says, and then to lift up the name of Christ. In other words, use your gifts for the sake of the gospel. So that just gets you started. How do we turn our mind for gain? Now, fourth question. What motivates this kind of work? What gets into the heart of a person, of a servant of God and motivates them to, I mean, because let's just be real. It is not easy to release your stuff. It is not easy to say, okay, who cares about my name? I want to serve you and I want to see Jesus. That's hard to do. That's not easy. What motivates the person engaged in that kind of work until the return of Christ? Well, To get at the right answer, I actually want to first look at the wrong one. 
Because I think it's the wrong answer that's actually kind of accented, emphasized in the parable Jesus tells us. In particular, it's what comes to the surface as we look at that third, uh, whom Jesus calls wicked servant. He made no gain. It doesn't go well for him. And we kind of see, kind of get this window into the inner workings to how things kind of unraveled and, 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 and didn't, didn't pan out for him. We can kind of see what was wrong in his heart. So look at verses 20 to 23 with me. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you. Okay, here we go. We get some of his logic. I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. Now, I'm aware when we read this, we're probably at first quite confused. Okay. Because we hear this third servant's description of this nobleman king we know to be Jesus. And we go, that doesn't describe my king. That doesn't describe the Jesus that I know. Taking what you did not deposit, reaping what you did not sow, severe, ungracious. That doesn't describe the Jesus I know. That doesn't describe the true Jesus standing before this crowd on his way to Jerusalem to die for his enemies. Severe. Taking what he did not, you know, deposit, reaping what he did not sow. I mean, listen, the only one taking what he did not deposit, reaping what he did not sow, is me. Do you you understand? That's the gospel. The gospel is, I get his righteousness. I don't deserve eternal life. I don't deserve the inheritance that comes with the children of light. I don't deserve salvation. I don't deserve satisfaction that comes from drinking from the, the well. Having the spirit inside. I don't deserve any of that. Christ is the one who, who made that deposit. Who did the work in the soil. He's the one who should be reaping that. Who should be taking that. And yet I get it. The only thing that Jesus takes. Which he did not deposit. And reaps which he did not sow. Is my sin. And the judgment for my sin. That is the meaning of the cross. It's incredible. And this man doesn't get it. And at first, perhaps we're confused as well because it would seem that 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 Jesus is agreeing with him. But note the question mark in verse 22, which as far as I know is also there in the Greek and the idea is Jesus is, is essentially uh, not agreeing with him, but reiterating the problem and preparing to deal with him on his own terms. So you knew me to be this way, huh? <laughs> okay, well then let's, let's play ball. <laughs> Bottom line, 
The reason this man wasn't motivated to do the work, the reason he was too afraid to do the work, the reason he was too cold, too hard to do the work is because he didn't truly know the king he was called to work for. And it's exposed here in his objection. (laughs) You're severe. You're harsh. You're kind of like a a thief (laughs) taking and I was scared. You don't know me. King seemed to him to be cruel and rigid and so not interested in working for him. I was watching this show with Megan the other night, past week, and this cop was talking about uh, having to work for this, who was suspected to be this kind of corrupt sheriff. And what he says is this, he says, it's hard to be motivated when you work for a man you don't respect. And I thought that's probably exactly what's going on here is like, listen, if God seems to you to be this rigid, callous, cruel, severe, you know, being in the sky waiting to slap your wrist, it's hard to work for a God you think is a jerk. The fear mongering and that sort of thing, it can only manipulate your behavior so far and it can't change your heart. And this man is, is, a, is an example of that. At the end of the day, he produced nothing because he didn't have, he didn't know the love of God or Christ for him, and he had no love in return. I think this is the sort of thing probably that happens today, right? In the cultural around as people hear some of the historically orthodox teachings of the church and of Jesus about, say, mm, let's just throw out a few homosexuality, male headship. Uh, uh, the doctrine of hell and judgment. And they go, oh my goodness, your God is mean. Your God is, is rude. Your God is a jerk. I don't want anything to do with him and you shouldn't either. And so people buy into that, even in the church. And they start going, ah, yeah, this is gross. And here's, here, here's what happens when you think that he is cruel, when you think that he's kind of this hard-nosed guy in the sky, this angry despot or whatever. Listen, you don't want to release your goods or use your gifts for the sake of the gospel. You don't. I don't know what gets you there. I don't know what motivates that kind of lifestyle. Coming to know. Jesus as he truly is. Is he in one sense severe, holy, (laughs) unswervingly so? Yes. But is he also unbelievably, unimaginably gracious and kind? Yes. You come to know the, the, the Savior, the King, who steps down from the throne to go to the cross for you. Be slaughtered as a lamb in your place. That does something to your heart. That changes the way you think about working for him. That's the sort of thing. That's why I think coming off of Zacchaeus is important that we note that. That's exactly what you see with Zacchaeus. It's not, you know, the fear mongering that gets him to change his behavior. It's Christ comes into my home. He accepts me. He loves me in the place of my filth. And from that place, I say, man, release my goods. Use whatever I got so that this can go out because this is good. Or I thought of uh, Peter's mother-in-law. There's this story in, in all the Gospels, really, but in Matthew 8, 14, I'm just going to read this. Jesus entered Peter's house. He saw Peter's mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand. The fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. Do you catch the logic? 
we experience Christ serving us, and then we rise, man, can I serve you? That's the flow. That's what motivates this kind of work. Pressing deeper into the gospel personally is what drives us, motivates us to release our stuff and, and, and use our gifts for the advance of that gospel so that other people can know it. That's the place to fight for faith is there, the cross. Now, finally, and this is where I'll, I'll draw things to a close. Um, this last question, what is coming for me at his return. What is coming for me at his return? Jesus gives us two possible outcomes. One is horribly frightening. One is incredibly amazing. The first we see uh, is what comes for those who at the end of the day aren't interested. Those who at the end of the day remain unrepentant, remain spiteful, remain keeping him at arm's distance. You have in this camp both that third servant, I think, who, who it would seem is maybe in the church, people kind of in the church, people kind of doing the thing, walking with Jesus. You might think Judas here, right? The guys who are in it, but for the wrong stuff, for the wrong reasons. And it starts to come out. They don't truly know him. They don't know his grace. They don't know his love. And as a result, they're not living in light of it. And then you have people like the citizens that say, listen, we are, we are your enemies. We're not even trying to pretend we're friends here. We hate you and all that you stand for. We do not want you to reign over us. Well, for these folks, it doesn't end well, right? It doesn't end well. You read that last verse and it is frightening. Bring them here and slaughter them before me. You go, wow, that sounds, it sounds like he is that crazy. See, I knew it. He's that crazy despot in the sky, just kind of cackling. <laughs> As you know, no. You can't forget the context. We're headed to Jerusalem where Jesus will be slaughtered for them. But they say, we don't care. We will be king of our own lives. We will roll the dice. If you decide to come again, fine, we'll take you up. And then he comes again and we read Revelation 6, right? Let the rock fall on our face. Lest we have to face the wrath of the Lamb. Because it's real. Because he's holy. He's not just gracious and patient. There is a severity, but there is a kindness. And, and, and if we push off the kindness, we go, who cares? And we, we play it down, the severity will come. And if they thought he was severe on earth, what are they going to think about him in hell? Then there are those who have encountered the love of God. I know in the parable, the actual story flows by first dealing with the good and then the bad. I thought, I can't end on that. So I'm going to leave you with this. There are those who have encountered the love of God for them in Jesus. And just gone, no, no way. I, I, I can't believe he went to the cross for me. I can't believe I get to, to, to take what I did not deposit. I get to reap what I did not sow. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And they live faithfully in light of that. Do we mess up still? Do we still? Of course. We repent. We come back to the cross. Thank you. And we, we press deeper into that gospel. We rejoice in it. And we continue to steward our stuff with a view to the coming kingdom. See, more people come into it, longing, waiting for it. 
And to those, it's amazing. Jesus, if to the previous, we see him kind of give severity upon severity. Well, to, 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 to us who are his servants, what we see is he gives us grace upon grace. Verse 17, well done, good servant, because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over, I would just say, more. I mean, you've got to remember, we came off of a parable where Jesus is teaching us to say, this was in Luke 17, we're just unworthy servants. We've only done what we've been told. We don't deserve reward. We don't deserve any of them. We deserve bring them here and slaughter them before me. But instead, we get his kindness. We get even rewarded in, in, in radical ways. Many commentators bring out there is an incredible uh, uh, disconnect or disproportionate sort of relationship between what these guys did and what they get. Okay, think about it. You got you got a hundred days labor. You got you know a, a few months salary. Faithful with that for the sake of what little you have for him. He said, I'm going to set you over cities. It's crazy. But that's a way of getting at grace upon grace. That's coming for the faithful servants, children, friends of God. Let's pray. God, we want to hear well done. And we know the way that we get there is not by muscling up and trying harder. It's by pressing deeper into what's already been done. At the cross by you. And in that place of grace. You move and motivate our hearts. To work for you. To release our goods and use our gifts. For the sake of the gospel and kingdom advance. Thank you for your kindness to us and Jesus. Help us to take your word seriously God. Lead us in reflection. Even in these moments. God, we want to sing to you. We want to rejoice in the work that you've done on our behalf. We want to repent where we need to repent. Release what we need to release. And come to you afresh this morning together. Amen.